and they said goodbye to their own parents, you know, my grandparents, my aunt and uncle, any schooling I had, their culture, their lives, to come here because I was into white guys. Hey everyone, I'm Uswa. And I'm Yasmeen. Welcome to Inner Work Ally Squared's official podcast where we learn how to better practice allyship. Today, we're going to be talking about microaggressions. Oh, microaggressions. This is essentially why I started Ally Squared is after facing so many microaggressions, I was like, okay, this is enough. Microaggressions are so common and a lot of people don't even realize what's happening or that the things that people are saying to them are a microaggression. So let's just quickly define um, for those of you who may not be familiar with it what exactly a microaggression is. So they're words or actions that seem passive or even innocent, but they're actually indications of violent or prejudiced attitudes against certain groups. Um, And microaggressions can be communicated as questions, random remarks, or even compliments, but ultimately they show a pattern of normalized oppression and of a marginalized group. And microaggressions are a big buzzword these days. They're in every equity training, every anti-oppression training, and they should be. But I feel like there's been a lack of deep dive into what microaggressions are. And I feel like people almost push them off to the side because of the name microaggressions. They think, oh, in the face of systematic oppression, microaggressions aren't anything serious, and so why should we even be talking about them in detail? But you know what? Today, I want to argue that microaggressions are probably one of the biggest pathways to systemic oppression. And I mean, personally, I did a TED Talk in 2018 solely about the microaggressions faced by myself, but also racialized women in general. And I feel like microaggressions are something that I've always internalized to a high degree and have always changed the way I see myself. And the biggest one that I've experienced is just the mispronunciation of my name and all the many microaggressions that come with that. So I feel like when growing up, I came to this country and people had a hard time pronouncing pronunciating my name. Wow, there you go. Can't even say the pronunciating word right. Um, Pronouncing my name. um, It was really difficult for me in the face of culture shock, in the face of settling in a country that looks incredibly different than mine, in the face of just making friends as a young person. Um, You know, my name was mispronounced many times and it wasn't just, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to mispronounce your name. It was, I'm going to make fun of your name because it's too difficult for me. And I just felt like my entire life, the lack of people trying to pronounce my name right really changed the way I saw myself. Yeah, and it's not, like we said, it's not just people making a mistake or accidentally saying something it's the active um you know purposely saying something and purposely you know perpetrating a stereotype or making you feel less than in their conversation yeah it's the basic disinterest in even trying so for me Mm -hmm. i always say you know if you mispronounce my name but you're saying you know how do i properly pronounce your name and after that you still can't get my name that's a different story for me because at least you tried 
But if you're just going ahead and you're mispronouncing my name and you're not caring to learn it, or if you're even avoiding saying my name, then that's where I have a problem because it's like, oh, you genuinely don't care because my name and my identity isn't convenient to you. Yeah, and I feel like on my end, in terms of microaggressions, for me as someone that's of mixed ethnicity, I find that a lot of the microaggressions I face are more based on my ethnicity. So even just immediately asking me, you know, what's your ethnicity or where are you from? Or, you know, you must be mixed. It's very demeaning because you're not even asking me my name. Mm -hmm. You're not even asking any, like, you don't know anything about me. It's almost like you immediately just want to know where I'm from, and then you'll go from there. Yeah, and then the always with microaggressions, you have to look at the underlying message because the fact that they're microaggressions means that they're communicated in really subtle ways. So the underlying message of what you've experienced is, I don't care about who you are, how you choose to identify. I care about what you look like and what your racial makeup is because that is going to change the way I treat you. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like I won't get too much into it because we do have a whole episode about, (laughs) (laughs) you know, people of mixed um, ethnicities and, you know, the things that they go through. But there is, there tends to be like an over-sexualization of biracial people. For me, even if I tell someone, you know, oh, I'm half Pakistani, the first thing that I find a lot of South Asians will do to me is immediately speak to me in Urdu or Hindi as if they're testing me to Mm -hmm. see if I'm telling the truth about where I'm from, which I just think is so disrespectful. And I used to, you know, laugh it off when I was younger And now that I'm older, it honestly makes me angry. And you just touched on something that's so important is the fact that because we've constantly been told that, oh, these are just small things, like don't pay any mind to them, they're not big deals, we tend to ignore them more and we tend to internalize them more. And I mean, with my name, the best way for me to communicate the internalization of that was just fearing applying to anything, you know, always thinking, oh my God, it's going to be so awkward if I have to raise my hand and the professor has to, you know, look at my name that I've written on, you know, the little paper that you have on the first day of class, or they're going to have to look at their notebook. Or, you know, when people, when professors were handing out assignments, dreading them saying my name. And it just always made me feel so small to the point where I used to, one, mispronounce my name when I introduced myself. So instead of saying Uswa, I used to say Aswa. And it was like this thing where I was like, I'm not even respecting myself anymore because I'm trying to cater to people who, you know, don't care for me. And then the other thing is just always feeling like, you know, you're not important. You're not worthy enough. And that having a name that's different than most people here and different than most people in my culture too. My name is incredibly unique means that, you know, I have to suffer. And so I know so many people who name their children in Canada, depending on what's going to look good on a resume, you know, instead of using traditional ethnic names, they'll anglicize those names. And for me, that's so sad because my name was given to me by my late grandmother. And it's, it's always been a thing in my family. My name means, my full name means the example of the best. 
And that's incredibly important to me because that's a guiding principle of how I live. And so it's not just, you know, the basic mispronunciation of my name. It's also what it stands for. And if you're saying Aswa, then you're completely changing the meaning of that name. So it's not, you know, um, the example of anymore. It's something else. And so I just feel like when you say someone's name, there's so many more layers in there. And the same way you assume people's ethnicity or you ask you know, someone's ethnicity is their first question. You're just assuming so many things and you're ignoring the underlying feelings behind that for your sake. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think it's important to kind of talk about, you know, who is the microaggressor and who's on the receiving end of the microaggression. And the microaggressor can really be anyone. So like you've talked about, you know, profs. I know that we've had instances with just people that we've met out and about, mm-hmm. you know, like anywhere that we go out for dinner, for example, out with our friends. Um, and microaggressions are typically the result of unchecked biases. And sometimes the microaggressor is not intending to make a hurtful comment or gesture and they don't necessarily realize the effect that this comment or gesture will have on the person on the receiving end. Um, And microaggressions can also come out of ignorance or a lack of education as well. So they may not even know that what they said or did was wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's often the case. I remember I was at a cafe and the barista had, you know, asked me, oh, okay, like, so where are you from? And I was living in Ottawa at the time. And I said, oh, Mississauga. And she was like, oh, no, like, where, where did you grow up? And I was like, yeah, Mississauga, like, the Aaron Mills area, do you know it? And she was like, no, I just mean, like, where is your family from? I was like, oh, no, my family currently lives in Mississauga. And I was trying so hard to maintain you know, the truth of how I felt. And then eventually she's like, okay, so where were you born? And I was like, okay, so I was born in Lahore, Pakistan, but what does that tell you about anything? What if I, like, know nothing of my culture and choose not to participate in my culture? I mean, that's not the truth, but what if I just didn't want to tell you, you know? And the barista at the time was a racialized woman, and she didn't see a problem in it, and she might have experienced it and might have never seen a problem in it. I think I fear it more when it comes from white people because then I'm like, if I tell you where I'm from, is there something that's going to be more scary or even more racist coming at me next? Because if I say I'm from Pakistan, am I going to get a terrorist joke, which I've gotten before? Mm -hmm. Am I going to get an oppressed Muslim joke, which I've also gotten before? Am I going to get like a, oh, you're from a poor third world country joke, which also gotten before? And so like those small things are so dreaded and I remember you would actually come to visit me up in Ottawa and I was going to grab some snacks across the street at the grocery store. And I remember this guy at the cash um, essentially being like, hey, like, are you from Lahore? And I was so shocked because I was like, oh, yeah, a white, yeah, a white guy knows about a city in Pakistan, <laughs> much less can identify that I'm from that city. And I was like, oh, yeah, how do you know? And he was like, oh, like, I did a paper in high school about Pakistan and a lot of the, like, girls that I searched on Google looked like you. And then I was like, oh, okay. And then he goes, okay, so you moved from, like, Lahore to here. When did you do that? And he was asking me about, like, my immigrant story. And I was like, yeah, I moved there. And he's like, 
oh, so why did you move here? Because your parents knew you were into white guys. And I just like stopped. And in that moment, I was so frozen and I was so horrified and horrified is the best word to describe that, that I just took my bag of stuff, took my receipt and just walked out the door. Like, yes, this is why my parents came here. Yeah. For, for you. When I was eight, they yeah. came here. For me to meet you. And they had applied to come <laughs> to this country when I was probably like two. Yeah. So at the age of two, they had predicted this. Yeah. And they said goodbye to their own parents, you know, my grandparents, my aunt and uncle, any schooling I had, their culture, their lives, to come here because I was into white guys. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like sometimes people will, you know, listen to these stories and they'll think, well, what's the big deal? Like, why should we, like, you're just being sensitive about it or... This person's just interested in, in your where ethnicity. you're from yeah. and your ethnicity. What's wrong with them asking you about that? But I think what people don't understand is that you it's not appropriate to just go up to a random person on the street and ask them about their business. You're not entitled to information not, about that. Exactly. You don't have that entitlement. So the fact that, and you know, I find typically it is with a lot of times women and race racialized, you mm -hmm. know, people who are racialized, um, that they face so many microaggressions and you're not, it's not that it's coming from a genuine place of, Oh, I just want to ask a question. Really you're basing these questions off of what this person looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, and would you do that to a white man walking on the street? And also why for me, it's, why do you need to know that information first? And if you feel so, you know, that it's so necessary to find that information first and foremost, then what is it really about me that interests you? Because is it, are you really trying to get to know me? Because what if, you know, I grew I was born in Canada and grew up in Canada. What if like I didn't connect with, you know, other cultures? What if I didn't connect with my, you know, people from my race? Like, what if I just didn't connect with the things you're asking me about? You're not learning anything about me. I'd rather you ask me about my hobbies and I can go into a 50 hour tangent about baking and how to properly cook a profiterole um, versus you asking me about my ethnicity and me not honestly knowing much about it. And so for me, it's always one, the entitlement of the information. Number two, you're not actually achieving a result of getting to know me. You're just feeling like you are stereotyping. And then number three, I just feel like, why is it about me that has to be tokenized or fetishized? Versus fetishized, yeah. Today's a Swiss <laughs> day of not knowing how to pronounce things. Um, yeah, and so I feel like when we talk about microaggressions, there's a couple things. I feel like they're more harmful than we think. I feel like they're never treated, you know, as importantly as they really are. I also would like to say that I see a lot of microaggressions among racialized communities as well. Like if we look at the amount of microaggressions within South Asian communities, at least in my experience growing up, communication was through microaggressions because there is a little... Not a little. There is a lot of judgment in that culture and, you know, especially of young women. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of what was communicated with me about the way I looked or 
how I acted was a lot of microaggressions. And I mean, when we talk about microaggressions, the anti-black racism that comes within South Asian communities, you know, that's also perpetuated through microaggressions. So all of these things to say that when you look at microaggressions, they're one of those things that can be done and said by anybody. Sometimes they're intentional, sometimes they're unintentional, but at the end of the day, they make a huge impact in a person's life. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about where we see microaggressions, we see them anywhere. And, you know, they can come off in forms of casual racism, casual sexism, casual homophobia. If someone, you know, it could be in the form of unwarranted touch. Mm -hmm. So you're, I've had this happen to me where I'm out with my friends and someone, you know, a a man will feel like they can grab you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I've had, you know, they'll grab me and they'll say, oh, where are you from? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that feeling of like, you're entitled to touching me. Like you're entitled to And feeling violation on your end. Yeah. And... You know, it's the cut. Well, I'm just asking. I just want to know where you're from. It's not that innocent, you know, mm-hmm. or we have the example of, you know, for the LGBTQ plus community, someone saying, you know, you don't look gay. Like, what does that even mean? What does like, that mean? please tell me what looking gay looks like, because I just I don't understand that at all. I can't wrap my head around that. I can't even begin to start about that. And I just don't understand how you can think that millions of people all around the world can fit one description. (laughs) Exactly. And then we talk so much about, you know, our examples of uh, microaggressions, but also I think we should talk about what the actual impact of these microaggressions are on us in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So I've already talked about, you know, the feeling of dread. So when you know, a professor is going to say your name, for example, or, you know, coming across someone who you know is going to say something like, where are you from? Or how many percent of this are you? Or whatever, you know, that feeling of dread. But you know what? On a macro scale, I think it, my experiences of microaggression really did screw me up for a really long time and required intense unlearning about myself intense feeling like the color of my skin did not have to turn into something that was you know tokenized or something that was gonna result in hatred you know um unlearning the fact that I had to assert my name and my identity before anyone else could so saying you pronounce my name like this Uswa you know And then correcting people, especially people that I was intimidated by, like new bosses or like people that I was looking up to um, saying that. And I think for me, the worst was my friends. So growing up, all of my friends who I introduced myself as Aswa to having to then be like, hey, I know we've been friends for five years, but can you call me Uswa now? Because that's how it is pronounced. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that took so much energy out of me that I almost became antisocial which is a weird thing for me to say because I'm an incredibly social person, but I think it took so much energy out of me to worry or to feel dread or to have to address it that I just didn't want to talk to anyone anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we talk up like even just the word microaggression, it makes it seem like it's so small, but like you said, they have such a big impact on how you saw yourself, 
how you saw yourself in your friend groups, mm-hmm. in society, your place in the world, it really, you know, affects how you view your whole identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how other people view you as well. Absolutely. And you know what? Like, I would also say that it's helped me realize who my true friends are because I can instantly then see who stands up for me. And I've had a couple experiences of experiencing microaggressions and I have had friends who are like, hey, that's not okay to ask her that. Or, hey, why are you asking her that? And that for me has been like, oh, okay. So you actively are practicing allyship for me. It's not just, oh, we're friends. It's you're not just my friend, but you're also my ally. And I mean, I wish I hadn't had to experience that, but that's shown me my true friends as well. And it's also shown me that you can stand up to these things and that privilege can be used um, to counteract these things all the time. And I mean, think about this. If I worry about my name being pronounced or, you know, how it looks at in resumes or in the hiring process, and there's millions of people like me with ethnic names who are doing that and are worried about that, then how many people are being not removed or not even being selected within a pool aren't even being included in a pool because they're too scared to include their name in there. So then your hiring pool is incredibly um, uniform in what it looks like. If your hiring pool is incredibly uniform, then you're going to have a really hard time hiring people. And you have a really hard time hiring people, and the person you're probably going to end up with is going to be someone with an Anglo name who's probably white, who probably doesn't have a lot of lived experiences of discrimination, who can inform equity work. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have an equity-minded person going into your job. And then, you know, you're ending up with a situation where even more microaggressions are going to be perpetuated because you're creating echo chambers of whiteness or echo chambers of privilege or echo chambers of ignorance. And, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there's going to be, you know, we think of it as microaggressions, but I feel like there's going to be a time where we look back and we realize all of those things that we thought were small turned into a huge systematic impact. Yeah. And I think, you know, that is something that we both now talking about it more that we've realized that those have had a very Mm -hmm. large impact on us in our lives um and you know we talk about how it makes us feel but also for the people who maybe enact these microaggressions and they don't even realize it um there are you know ways that they can kind of avoid being a microaggressor. Mm-hmm. And we talk about this during our trainings as well. And it's one of those things where it's like, sometimes you don't know until someone tells you, which is also why we strongly, strongly suggest, because they're microaggressions, and if you're coming from a place of privilege, we strongly suggest that you stand up and correct that person or tell that person what they're doing is wrong. Um, Yasmin, what do you think are some ways that we can avoid being microaggressors? Yeah, so I think... You know, a lot of what we talk about is learning and unlearning your biases. I think that's really important. And you talked about, you know, an echo chamber. And I feel like a lot of your biases often come from the people around you who reinforce your behavior or that you've learned from. So your family, your community, your friends. And I think it's really important to listen to people. You know, Mm -hmm. if someone is telling you, 
hey, you know, you're mispronouncing my name or, you know, I'm not really comfortable telling you my whole life story mm-hmm. about where I'm from. Listen to that person. You know, it's a, don't get overly, well, try not, it's easy to say don't, but, you know, try not to get defensive about it. Mm-hmm. Everything is a learning opportunity. So when we talk about unlearning things, it's, you know, you can unlearn the biases that you have. Absolutely. And I feel like when you talk about family, a big part of that is growing up being like, you know, maybe being in the grocery store and you see someone, you know, having a hard time finding something or having a hard time reading something. And your parent says, oh, a person of this kind, whatever that may be, their ethnicity, their um, race or religion, whatever, doesn't know how to read or doesn't, is dumb, you know, and you're growing up and then you meet someone and they're like incredibly intelligent as people of all different races are or all different ethnicities are. And then you say something like, oh, you're so articulate or, oh, your English is so, you know, you speak English so well or, oh my God, like I didn't realize how smart you were, you know, It comes from this belief that you've learned that a person from, you know, whatever that demographic is or that identity is can't be intelligent or can't be articulate or can't speak English well. Oh, my gosh. I was just reminded of a moment that I had at work where I was helping two customers and it was, um, you know, a racialized woman and her husband who was white. And there, you know, I was helping them and I had to get someone to come in and help me. And the person who came in to help me, their reaction for whatever reason was to look at the husband and say, does she speak English? (gasps) Oh, my God. And I could have melted into the floor. And, you know, the husband was... Well, I hope so. Otherwise, our marriage wouldn't, <laughs> How wouldn't would be we doing very well. And the woman, I felt so bad for her because her immediate reaction was just, yes, I can. But she didn't really say any more than that. And I feel like the person who did, who said that, I could feel her embarrassment almost at having realized what she said. Mm-hmm. And feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just said that. Because obviously this woman was, you know, visibly upset. And then the husband tried to kind of make a joke out of it to diffuse the tension. But I feel like that would be an example of a great time to kind of check your own bias. When you can visibly see and feel the tension in the room over something that you've said instead of getting defensive about it, just kind of, you know, taking a minute afterwards to think, okay, why did I say that? And also apologizing. I feel like in that situation, what they needed was an ally who was like, yeah, of course she could speak English. Why couldn't she? Or, oh, like, why, like, why did you look at the husband, you know, pull them aside after and say that? And I feel like it's really hard for us to practice allyship in those situations but we need to start building those habits and I feel like you know the of course like you know what the husband said being like of course you know 
otherwise our marriage would have been very difficult was a really good way to address that because it wasn't how dare you say this which would definitely put the other person on the defensive it was yeah of course like why questioning the motive behind it right why would you think that right like or you know the relationship would have wouldn't have worked and so you're automatically signaling to the other person that they need to rethink what they've said. And so I think when we talk about combating microaggressions and practicing allyship, all the time we, you know, almost dread having to do that because we're worried about ourselves. But I think often we have to consider how the you know, you can say things in order to diffuse the situation while also practicing allyship and telling the other person maybe what you've said is wrong. Exactly. I think another way for us to think about this is the fact that moving forward, microaggressions are only micro in the way they've been delivered, not in their impact. Um, We can be more cognizant of the the perpetuation of stereotypes that we have. Um, We can be careful of what we say, what we assume about people. And we can also act as allies or practice allyship for people who we know constantly experience microaggressions in our life. Yeah, exactly. And I think also for the people who are on the receiving end of microaggressions, you know, just know that you can say something. You can be an ally, you know, for yourself. And even though we call them microaggressions, they're not small. And if you feel like, you know, this is having a big impact on you, you don't necessarily have to, you know, fight the person, you know, verbally or anything, but just, you know, have it in your mind that you do have the power to just, you know, say, hey, that's not how you pronounce my name. Or, yes, I do speak English. Why would you think that I didn't? Mm-hmm. You know, you it's not something small. You're not being overly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Your emotions are valid and you are important. And at the end of the day, I think the hardest thing I had to teach myself is if I'm not standing up for myself, then no one will. Because there's going to be times no one's around. There's going to be times where I don't have allies around. And so at the end of the day, as long as it's safe for me and my gut is telling me that I, I will be okay if I do this then I need to assert myself because they're going to assert their stereotypes louder than I'll be able to assert myself if I don't. And so I think that's a good wrap-up of our microaggressions. Um, If you have any questions, of course, um, send us a message on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ally2Squared, and follow us on Spotify, Apple, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Make sure to catch us on our next episode um, on Sundays bi-weekly. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.